Thank you for joining Analytics Today, a podcast series that focuses on big data and analytics and the latest trends in the digital world. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Roberts, and with me always is my co-host, Samir Khan. Hey, Samir. Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? Good. Excited for the summer and happy that we have a guest. You see this random third person on, you know, on, on our on our show today, and you're sitting there thinking, okay, this guy didn't introduce himself. What are you doing? Oh, we have a guest today, a guy named Nick Ed- Edward, correct? Yes. Thank you, Jeremy. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. And and so, you know, I, I guess, Samir, um, you know, I guess before we start about anything, is there any kind of special things going on in the marketing world before we get into our interviews today? Anything highlighted? There's always you- special things going on in the marketing world. I think what's what's happening right now is all these great company, and we're going to talk about Nick Edwards' company shortly uh, and do a quick introduction, but I think there is a lots of uh, amazing things that's happening today in the content world on how marketers are consuming content, how people are uh, getting beyond the, you know, the, the basics of the content and start to utilize content across the entire journey of the customer. Uh, so that's the reason why we have Nick here and the, the topic of today is very, very relevant, which is how to transform your marketing funnel using content consumption data with Nick Edward. So I'm really excited and I'm pretty sure Jeremy, you are as well. I, I'm pumped because I've, I think for me, I've always said that that content is the lifeblood of, of any business. And with good marketing, you know, it, it's hard to fail. There was a Forbes study that I remember always is that the successful companies that really make it as they're growing is for growth companies. They have 4x the amount of content that other ones don't. 4x. That's amazing. Yep. Cool. So let's start with this, Nick. Uh, what we want to do is... Before we start to talk about Path Factory, uh, your company, let, tell us about you. Any cool, interesting places that you used to work or anything in your background? Like, I used to be a deep sea diver, and then all of a sudden I cured cancer, and now I got into content marketing or something random like that. Right? How do you know, Jeremy? That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, oh, what's interesting about me? So, I'm, uh, yeah, so mentioned. Well, my name's Nick Edward. I'm a co-founder and president at Path Factory. Uh, what's interesting, I'm British. You probably have already picked up on that, so I've got a bit of a funny accent. Um, <laughs> it's a bit easier since Downton Abbey became quite popular. In nice. Um, and, Hugh, and Hugh Grant. And Hugh Grant, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd be a much like Hugh Grant. I did, uh, I did spend four years at Oxford. I have a, a particularly useless degree in something called Literae Humaniores, which is classics and philosophy. Now, hmm. data, so go figure. Um, interesting jobs. I did. I did spend uh, some time at Kinetic, capital Q I N E T I Q, which was uh, the UK Ministry of Defence Defence Evaluation Research Agency. It's basically like three and a half thousand uh, people with PhDs and beards and sandals in a secure facility in Malvern in England. Looks like NASA. It's kind of like that. It's actually, so they're called Kinetic, which is a ridiculous name, but they're called Kinetic because they are basically the, the Q in the Bond films. There's just three and a half thousand. So that was pretty fun. Claims to fame. I went to uh, school and university with Coldplay, which I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing in your guys' books, but uh, I did fun that. I have stuff. a few of those songs. I have a few of, uh, you know, Coldplay songs, but, you know. <laughs> so, 
some of it, some of that's my fault. Although I can't can't take a lot of credit for the music or the creativity or this. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So I guess uh, I'll, I'll go into the first question. How this works is we'll go back and forth a little bit, and then Samir and I will um, you know talk about a few different things. So the first one, right? Um, tell us about Path Factory, and you know what is your job there? Are you the the chief people herder? Or do you have a weird title, or are you just co-founder CEO? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm co-founder and president. I mean, I'm a chief product officer, but we fortunately have someone way more competent than me that's learning product and engineering on a day-to-day -day basis. A chap called Stephen Strike. He's run product at Eloqua for ten years. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we so Path Factory. We're a marketing software company based here in Toronto. About 100 employees. We work with a lot of uh, leading B2B enterprise and mid-market companies, Adobe being one of them, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, others, ADP, Cisco, Thomson Reuters, etc. Uh, you would know pretty much all of their names. And what, what do we do? How do we help them? Well, our mission, what we do for our customers, is we help their buyers buy. And we do that by removing friction for the B2B buyers, by enabling them to find and consume the right content uh, whenever and wherever we see them, right? So across different channels. Um, and we call that buyer enablement. We think it's a very big idea. We think it's phenomenally important, in part because, well, I'm sure we're going to touch on this multiple times, but the B2B buyer has changed more rapidly than B2B marketing has changed. And I think that probably the biggest tension, the biggest problem facing marketing is that, right? That our, our B2B buyers are consumerized. So what do I mean by, by that? Well, I'll give you an example. I'm going to go to San Francisco next week, and I know already when I get back from from uh, from the Bay, when I land in Toronto, I will use Uber to get home. I'll probably mm -hmm. use Uber Eats for some good quality, easy Friday night food. And then after a couple of days on the road, I'll definitely sit down in front of Netflix and probably finish watching kind of season four of uh, Line of Duty, which is awesome. Nice. And I will undoubtedly binge on it too, and then probably hopefully pass out. The, the, those are all very different services, right? But I go back to them repeatedly because they do one thing really well in a frictionless way. They match my demand with supply, suite of cars, uh, restaurants, films and movies, etc. And that's the experience that we've come to expect in our lives. And the good thing about working in B2B is that we all have this B2C life, in theory, outside of our nine to five. So that's our experience in our B2C lives. Then you kind of come across the B2B buying experience. And it's like, well, it's riddled with friction. Like we make it really hard for demand, me, my buyer, to find the supply, the information that I'm looking for. And that's the problem mm -hmm. that we solve for. Does that make sense, Jeff? Oh, it does. It does, yeah. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Nice. Uh, Samir, you want to go with uh, our second one? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so interesting concept that you mentioned that uh, – which kind of kind of hit me with a ton of break is when you said the the B two B companies are not changing as rapidly as the B two B buyers are. Uh, so let's elaborate a little bit more on that idea because I, I feel like that's a very profound thought you have in there. So what is Path Factory doing to enable that change? Sure. It's a great question. So let's look at the way that B two B marketing therapies work. And I guess one of the kind of really more interesting things is. I have an enormous empathy for B2B marketers these days, right? It's not an easy job. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of any area of business that's changed as rapidly as B2B marketing has in like the last 10 years. I mean, not to... Uh, it's complex. Yeah, it really is complex, right? 
we've gone well beyond the kind of supporting sales at a trade show with some with some glossy. <laughs> We're now back. You know that visual that shows like the one straight line from like A to B, and now it's the A with the squiggly line all the way to B. That's what yeah, the dream yeah. looks like. It's like you're pulling your hair out, you know. Spot on. And I think yeah. the, the, the the kind of B one of the Martech stack, like the CMS, the map, etc. We focus around channels. We didn't okay. focus on really kind of what is ultimately kind of our weapon of choice as a marketer, which is the content, right? Bob doesn't buy because he clicks on emails or display ads or visits your website. Bob buys because we educate him about moving through awareness, consideration, purchase, evaluate all of that marketing. That's what happens, right? And so we've invested in kind of things that were channels. And from a data perspective, these channels were fundamentally fueled, first and foremost, by binary data, clicks, mm -hmm. visits, form fills, things that did or did not happen. So they tell us stuff about quantity. We had 100 people click on the email we just sent with Marketo. Great. What's the quality of the interaction on kind of the destination side of the click though, right? We'd all agree there's a fundamental difference between kind of Bob and Sally. If Bob spends six seconds post-click, Sally spends six minutes and then goes on to engage with two more content assets that we're serving to her kind of in session, gives us 12 minutes maybe of her precious time. That's a fundamentally different quality of engagement. And that's mm -hmm. what we track. So we mint this entire new class of, of kind of data for our customers. I've always thought that the, the ideal formula, a lot of people just say, it depends on who you're speaking to. And Samir and I kind of go back and forth on this a lot is people talk about KPIs, well, metrics. You have these people that are so uber focused on just the data and they read the data, but they don't look at the other side of it, the qualitative side. And I like the, the idea where you're mixing the quantitative and the qualitative, the art and the science, the content and the data. It's idea. It's, it's not just about KPIs, but it's also about customer experience. You know, it, and, and you cannot look at one without the other. Right. And I'm, I'm just curious, so how, how does Path Factory kind of, you know, take that on? How do we work, basically? How, does it, how, do, how do we do it? Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, let, let's say in late, let, let's try it in lay, lay terms, because I think we might have some listeners who are sitting there thinking, cool, that sounds cool, but I, I don't really get what you still do. Yeah, all right. Well, let's come back to my Bob and Sally example. So we've got an offer in the email that we just sent them on this display ad that we showed. So they click on that to engage with the video, for example. Okay, they're clicking through. Bob spends six seconds disappears. Now Sally watches all the video. Now, how people naturally consume content is not in a stop-start way, right? We mm -hmm. set aside time to do research, to engage with something. Something piques our interest. So we've got a meeting tomorrow. So we've got half an hour to do the research that we need to bring to that meeting. Think about the last time you guys made a considered purchase. You didn't do it by showing up, like buying a car. You don't show up at the dealership once, once a week. And uh, you hope not. You hope not. Well, you've got too much time in your hands if you do, basically. Yeah. But you go up at the dealership, like research the engine, come back a week later, ask about the trim options, entertainment the following week. Like that's how to submit to your question earlier. That's how we've marketed historically, right? On our schedule and not on the buyer's schedule. So coming back to what we do, Sally clicks through and watches all of that video. Where does she go now? What does she do next? That's what we do. We serve more content, more relevant content kind of in session. We do that in a variety of different ways and we have different looks and feels and different types of experiences. But fundamentally, we're trying to accommodate a very natural behavior from an engaged prospect if they're in this kind of educational mode. How do we feed their appetite for more content? We use AI to do that. Mm -hmm. We don't have to. 
like the marketer might have a very specific audience, like the kind of target account. This is what we want to know. It's very easy to curate this. If A, then B. That's normally inherent in a in a lead nurture program, right? I structure this. And I'm going to send email one, advertise content offer A to maybe 12,000 people tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. I'm going to wait two weeks. I'm going to send that again at 12 a, at 10 a.m. to 12,000 people because that's a good time for all of them. I'm trying to tell this story over six weeks. Mm-hmm. Right. With a 2% click-through rate, I don't get the chance to engage Bob and Sally six times, right? So how do, we, how do we take something that was slow and scheduled and worked on my, the marketer's schedule, and actually turn it into something that, that works for Sally's schedule? How do we serve her up the thing that we're going to email her about in two weeks' time, but we do it here and now because she's engaging? So accommodate this natural behavior and identify it, push that, or capture that data, push it back into the map or into the CRM. So sales can have a meaningful conversation with someone. No, no, this like, I see you filled in the form on our website to download that ebook. This is why I'm ringing. It's like, I haven't read it. I'm not educated. I'm not ready to have that conversation. No, I, I completely agree. And, and Samir and I both have, have been in both the startup and the corporate world. And yeah, we, we've seen all forms of that. Yeah, Samir, you got a question? Or? No, I was going to say like, it's fascinating because in the early days, and this is like almost like a, you know, about like 10 years ago, uh, I used to be running a product marketing for the back then it was called CoreMetrics and then IBM acquired it. Yeah. Uh, so for CoreMetrics, we had this intelligent insight engine, which is uh, you know similar to what you're talking about, like getting the the analytics data based on the user behavior and surfacing content. Um, so that's been that industry has been uh, growing uh, significantly. I know the old, old days we didn't had any su- uber sophisticated algorithms. Uh, so how is the the modern version of content surfacing and recommendation uh, changed compared to what it used to be like 10 years ago? Sure, sure. It's a great question. So first and foremost, I mean, we've evolved quite a lot over the, the last six years or so. Candidly, the way that what we do today and what is, is uh, night and day relative to where we were even three or four years ago. The primary reason for that was the data set didn't exist. Right? We had hmm. to in the first instance on behalf of our customers and we've been continuing to to improve the recommendation service we can do that because we've got better quality data so the way that i always think about this and without not going to go directly into how we do it because there's some some intellectual property in that but makes sense fundamentally (laughs) we think about the the data model as a kind of three three main pillars to it there's information about the visitor there's information about the content and then there's information about engagement how do they hit it off what we mm-hmm. kind of do is like B2B matchmaking, right? Like engaged prospect would love to meet interesting content on subject X. So that's really what we do. So the Vista side of things, we were talking uh, briefly, Jeremy, earlier about kind of like uh, uh, the, the kind of universal profile. We'll take that, the information about the Vista from wherever we can get it. And it's a waterfall from someone's a first time visitor and anonymous right down to they're a late stage uh, SQO, right? They're associated with a contact in Salesforce or CRM. The content side of things, we looked at that and said, actually, we have to do a better job ourselves of helping our customers, our marketing teams, understand their content. Because we have the idea in our application of a content library. We don't really host content at all, frequently if it's, it's already on AEM or something. What we do do is kind of aggregate it as a staging environment. So it can be from multiple different, different properties. It can include third-party content, through the videos you've got on Vimeo, etc. We translate all of that into a machine-readable format, and then we do quite a lot of different things with it. We run nice. 
natural language processing against it. We do kind of topic clustering and the like to really understand the distance between the content assets. And we had to do that because several years ago when I looked at the content that our customers were seeking to activate to get their buyers to engage with, not, it wasn't very well tagged, to be honest. Tagging is hard. And also, we've always got bias in tagging, right? Because I wrote this, therefore it is to do with this. So we could have real-life example. One of our customers, they've only got uh, uh, nine topics across their entire content taxonomy, right? Mm -hmm. so we can have, when we do, have 500 content assets that are tagged as payroll. So if Bob's engaging with content asset one, that's to do with payroll, which of the other 499 do we possibly think he's going to should be engaging with next? So we do a couple of things. But the first thing is that we, we look at the distance. We read the content and then establish, well, what is the distance? How similar is this to other content? What cluster is this part nice. of? So then, for example, in the, typically we return about 200 topics per content asset. So each of these we start to be able to break out into smaller and smaller things. So now this may definitely do with payroll. Marcus has told us that. But it's also very strong on the behavioral science aspects of payroll. Great. What other things do we have about behavioral science? And how does it evolve, et cetera? We start to map the distance between the content assets. So you combine that with engagement data as to what's actually worked and how, how you've resonated, and you've got your stuff for rec service. Hmm. Nice. Uh, let, let, me, let me change directions uh, a little bit. So let's talk about the average B2B marketer, right? We talked about challenges. Um, you know, we, we talked about the difficulty of B2B, but when it comes to it, I mean, what is the, let, let's give the lay, layman's terms answer to that. Like, what is the biggest challenge that they have as a B2B marketer when it comes to just marketing and what can they do? Like, wh where should they start? Because I think a lot of people are saying, great, Jeremy and Samir, you have these great answers, but dude, that's like five steps away. You know, what can I do today? What can I do to start? Like, how do I assess what's going on and how, how do I move forward with anything? Like, is, is content the most important thing they should focus on? That's a, that a good and a very big... <laughs> the, the, the lazy answer for that would be for me to trot back kind of all the research which I read, I'm sure you guys read it mm -hmm. too. Digital transformation is the CMA's number one priority. And I saw something this morning that said 63% of marketers have been challenged with attribution and ROI. Yep. Absolutely a major challenge. I still think that even that though is slightly misguided. I mean, I've asked my team, right? We use SalesLoft a lot. Yeah. Our prospecting. How do we prove the ROI of SalesLoft? So the answer is we can't. The way we do something, right, is a capability. We can look at SalesLoft as part of our stack. Like, we're earning mm -hmm. 12% of our revenue or marketing. Does that give us a return or not? But really, the only easy way to do kind of like ROI and uh, uh, is, is from a campaign centric perspective, right? Okay. So easy for me to assess if I'm doing content syndication A, program A, content B, what actually do they respectively generate? Better decision. So I guess my, my translation to all this to simplify down, I think what, and, and I think Samir and I 100% agree on this and tell me, Samir, if I'm wrong, the, the biggest challenges a B2B marketer has is really looking at their data. And it's that phrase of, I don't know what I don't know. 
don't don't go out and spend a whole bunch of money. Even even you being you know your position at Path Factory, I'm sure you've told your clients, don't come to us unless you know what's going on with your data. We're not going to fix something that you don't even understand what the hell's going on first, right? Go in, look at your data, break it down, understand where you have your problems. And then once you come to us and you come and start to figure out how to fix your challenges, you know, you know what to focus on because you can't just, you know, spray and pray and figure out that, Hey, I'm going to just randomly do everything. I'm going to start doing a whole bunch of great content. I'm going to spend a whole bunch of money on branding. I'm going to do, I'm going to start using AI and I'm going to fix everything. I, I call BS on that. Yeah. You know, know your data. Yeah, know your data. And I think in some cases, though, it's like actually have the right data to answer the right questions for stuff. Like yes. Talking about content, right? So how do we, um, one of the things that, that we're doing is, is building a very holistic view of how your audience engages with your content and the role that it plays. Why not? Right? So, it sounds like a great product. I mean, yeah, it's like. It works. Yeah. So I'll give you an example from, um, uh, from Thompson Reuters recently. So they were able to identify that uh, uh, they had a particular content asset that 97% of their leads that they generated from a campaign mm-hmm. actually interacted, yeah. uh, spent meaningful time with, right? Had to spend more than 30 seconds with this. If they did do that, their propensity to engage with more content was also 3x, right? And so all the pipeline came from this. Now, when you look at the content type, this content type was woefully unrepresented in the rest of their content. So they were spending a lot of money producing long-form content, et cetera, that no one was engaging with unless they'd actually already spent time engaging with this. It was actually an infographic. Now, at that point, that becomes fascinating because now you can start to look at we're dropping 26% of marketing's budget on content production. Well, what's actually working for us? Now we're actually giving the teams the evidence to say, we don't need to start writing white papers. There's a time and a place, right? But we do actually get better engagement from this. We get a better return on that. Now we can look at influence pipeline. Actually, what's closed, uh, close one revenue, and then trace back the content that actually drove those decisions that helped Bob become an MQL and then progress through the rest of the funnel. And without that kind of level of visibility, we're flying blind. I'll give you another example, whatever it, like talking about channels. So this is actually for our own marketing team. And uh, I can think of three or four customers that have the same, uh, exactly the same use case. So we're, we're a reasonably small marketing team. Our display budget is somewhat constrained. Last year, we ran three display providers, LinkedIn, AdRail, they weren't in the third. Now, the third drove twice the volume of traffic as LinkedIn and AdRoll for the same amount of money um, combined. So on the face of it, number three is winning. The problem was, because of our data, we can marry that, and the data that uh, they drive, our marketing team obviously uses our product, they drive in Path Factory content tracks. We were seeing this traffic, while high volume, spending two, three, four, five, six seconds with the content and then disappearing. By comparison, LinkedIn and Agile, they were spending about two and a half minutes going on to binge. We had a very respectable binge rate from the audiences. These people were progressing in the funnel, and we could track it through. These guys were engaging with our content. So we took the money from this and doubled down on these two guys. Because why on earth do I want to spend 15 bucks a click if Bob is spending two seconds with the content? That's not meaningful. It's not meaningful, yeah. That's interesting. So, uh, so taking taking the same approach and you know taking it oh, one step further, and I know Nick, you shared some examples of your customer 
Uh, can you share more example, like specific examples where a customer came in, they were really scrambling when it comes to their content marketing and they started using Pat Factory and the end results they got? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to read off a thing or two in a tape. But if you go to pathfactory.com slash customers, you can see an awful lot of those exact use cases. And one of the things that we're most proud about this company, proud of our customers too, is uh, in the last 12 months, 54% of them have performed a major act of advocacy for us. So that's right. We nice. our review speaking um, at, a, at Adobe Summit, for example, or getting on a customer reference call, whatever it is, not just tweeting or stuff. This is hopefully really meaningful stuff. And um, that would not be happening if they weren't getting tremendous value and about things that not just marketing cares about, but the business actually cares about, i.e. revenue pipeline, uh, if that wasn't happening. So I'll give you an example because I'm quite familiar with, uh, with them. Uh, Tipco. Um, so we'll use there on both in their demand gen campaigns and in their ABM campaigns, they saw a 27% increase in their MQL conversion rate, a 5% increase in the, in the sales accepted lead to SQL, a 5x increase in opportunities. On a particular campaign, they saw a 92% increase in their sale qualified opportunities. Um, wow, so that's huge. Not, yeah. Mervin is, is a good friend, by the way, Mervin Allen Gear. Yeah, we, we had him in the podcast about few months ago. Mervin is a great He's awesome. yeah. AAA B2B marketer. He, yeah. he One of the things I love about Mervin, actually, when he's spoken on our behalf and when we're unpacking this, I'm going to hopefully do a good job of paraphrasing him, is you know how good a mar marketer Mervin is. So he was doing all the stuff that he should do, like mapping out the content, the stages of the buyer's journey and personas. And... Um, uh, I've heard Mervin say this. He's like, well, the interesting thing is I was only ever 50% right. So <laughs> the concept <laughs> I thought was going to resonate is sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. And sometimes it was the other things that actually, for our data scientist persona, really seemed to resonate and help them. It's like, we can't just do this as an academic exercise involving serious decisions frameworks and post-it notes and stuff. We've got to generate the data set that actually proves whether or not we were right or not. And then... Uh, on the fly, kind of re-architect it. I know some of your colleagues, Jeremy and, and Adobe Document Cloud, they've been they're using the data at the moment to rethink their nurture. What content's yeah. working? What sequence do we deliver it in? Makes sense. Cool. Uh, that was demand gen side of things. I'll give you a customer marketing example. Sure. Because sure. people don't use products if they don't educate themselves about it as to how to use it too, right? So Cisco, they... Uh, Cisco, we, we used on the customer marketing and the partner marketing. Um, Cisco saw a 3.5x increase in adoption linked to content engagement. Now, shock horror again, as I mentioned. If, uh, if people read about your product, they're more likely to use it, particularly in convert from trials and the like. So this resulted in a 24% increase in the earlier revenue from a particular product line. And I think That's that this- pretty significant. Uh, yeah, it's, it's nuts. I mean, I think this is one product which comprises something like, I think, of 10 products. So it's like 12.6 billion in revenue for, uh, for Cisco. So it's big. Um, and I think they, over the space of kind of uh, 12 months, they delivered kind of 100,000 highly personalized engagements. And that's where things like the AI come in, because you can't do that, right? We just can't set up that number of rules for that number of people. 
Uh, and so, Jeremy, you mentioned, you alluded to this earlier. It's like, no one's going to buy AI. I think marketers, we need to stop saying like, it, it can't be the next thing. It's like, I'm going to get me some ABM and now I'm going to get me some AI. It doesn't work like that at all, right? The emphasis is on us to use AI to solve. I get the question every, every meeting. Somebody's like, uh, for let's say for Adobe Sensei. So can we just buy Adobe Sensei? Well, no, no, it's built in. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't buy you already... AI, you get the benefit from it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we use AI to help solve some problems which are really difficult problems to solve without it. It's not impossible. Nice. Very cool. Let, let me let me change uh, flip to do another direction. So uh, we have this little insight says you have a very interesting journey. So you started as a consultant for a company called Arthur D. Little. And then, you know, moved on to become the, the co-founder and the president at Path Factory. So do you have this strange journey? Because I think some of the other uh, companies that we've spoken to that are actually Toronto-based, they all have some really weird journeys. And I think, yeah, I remember even one of them. I think Samiri was Uberflip or one of the guys. He talked about this, this challenge from his father who told him he should run his own business or something. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Was and, it Yav? I think it was Yav yeah. or the other. I think Randy or Yav, either one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Randy from Uberflip. So right. I, do you have this interesting journey, Nick? No, sure. I think, my, I think my dad would be way happier if I went to Oracle because he might, he might explain. He might understand. <laughs> uh, my father's challenge was get out of the house as quickly as possible and go make your own way. I'm doing it at this time. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't think mine particularly unusual. I think the thing that's driven my career is I've always been passionate about using tech to solve problems, right? I mean, that's what I was doing at Arthur Missile. ADL is uh, the world's oldest management consultancy. I think it was founded in like 1886, so based in Boston. Um, and I think things like, I think pretty certain Boston Consulting Group is a spin out from ADL. The thing that really attracted me to ADL versus Bain and BCG and the others was that they were so focused on the tech side of things. So, I spent pretty much all my 20s kind of working in the strategy and kind of corporate finance practice of ADL mm -hmm. and, and figuring out how tech was going to change things, right? So I did a lot of 3D license bids. I think we worked on, team worked on $23.5 billion worth of debt syndication in 18 months when everyone's trying to raise money to buy a 3G license. And I did it for Hutchison One Power and kind of the morning after when we spent $3 billion in some spectrum. It was like five people from Hutchison One Power and five people from ADL, it's like, oh my God, what do we do? We just spent $3 billion buying some spectrum. We should probably do something with that. Let's build a network. Yeah, um, yeah. And then but after the, having done that, I thought, uh, well, I should probably go and put my money where my mouth was, right? I've been telling other people what to do with no real skin in the game. And so uh, I, I, all my career since then has been involved some time at Kinetic, and Kinetic's got more tech than you can possibly imagine and we were looking at kind of like well how can we use this tech to solve problems and that's really what we're doing at path factory too it's like how can we use tech to solve problems and mm -hmm. i like that yeah bed in the morning right is, so you uh, took the idea of saying i'm tired I, I i'm a consultant i'm sitting here telling everybody what to do all the time i actually know what i should be doing i'm going to go put that into practice and become a practitioner i'm not saying yeah. that knew what I was doing. I'm not, I'm not going to go quite that far. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, it's worked out okay. I mean, Path Factory is um, probably the third company that I kind of co-founded or led. And um, one, one in particular was 
been quite successful previously. But uh, the, the Path Factory is easily my best work. And if there's one thing that I mentioned earlier about like 54% of advocacy, that, that would not happen if we didn't have awesome customers, people that really wanted to change stuff, right? And sure. A rather fantastic team that uh, keep me on my toes and are really uh, are empathetic to the situation, to the problems facing B2B marketers. And uh, one of the things we're, we're very, we have a lot of marketing expertise in the company. People that were part of the V1 Martech stack, like a lot of ex eloquence, people that walked us uh, a mile in our customers' shoes. So we have a solutions team like you, Jeremy, mm -hmm. just like you. It's full of people that have been director of marketing ops. It's actually full of quite a few ex-customers of ours, people that have joined us. From nice. And, uh, nice. Yeah, we've got we've got to, we've got to know. We've really got to understand and know what the problems facing the market are. Otherwise, we're just another piece of tech. <laughs> so we'll do this. I think we have time for a few more questions. So what I'll do is I'll uh, jump over back to Samir, and then I'm going to come back to this is the pie in the sky future kind of question. So I'll leave that for the end because I'm going to throw you off and you're going to say, why'd you ask me that? So one of the things that's, that's interest me, it's uh, I remember lookbook HQ. So, in, you know, in my previous companies, we have come across uh, lookbook HQ a couple of times in the marketing ops uh, leadership role. And, and then your name kept popping up and, uh, and we were like evaluating you guys and a couple other uh, content uh, AI you know, machine learning providers. Uh, so what made you guys move from Lookbook HQ because it already had some good traction in the market to move to a completely new brand, which is Path Factory. And uh, how are you guys seeing that? The, how, how, is the, how are the customers and the prospects uh, accepting this new change? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It, wasn't, it definitely wasn't a decision we took lightly, but if we were ever going to do it, we did it 15 months ago the serious decision summit then was the right time because we were coming out with a whole series of uh new product developments right really this next gen rec service the path factory engine i think the I'm, I'm probably not the smartest person you've ever had on this podcast without a shadow of a doubt but i am smart enough to know that when some of your customers write to you and say when are you going to change your name because it doesn't do a good <laughs> job of reflecting everything you guys do you should probably consider it. Time to change. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the Lipbook HQ served us brilliantly and, uh, for a while, um, but it was too content typey, right? Everyone is familiar with the Lipbook, and that was great. But really, the way that I always think about product, the way that we explain our product is the supply wheel between kind of the, the content side of things, the activation, what the buyer see, and then the data set that it generates, and then the engines and the hardware. So there's this constant kind of content plus data. I mean, when Adobe bought Marketo last September, October, whatever it was, that was the narrative, right? Like B2B marketing is about content plus data. And that's something which, which we've always felt is centered to the thing. Sometimes it's a problem for us, right? Candidly, because uh, are, we, are we too much on the content? Are we too much on the data? Um, but that's how, that's how B2B marketing works. It's all to do with content and data. So that's why we made the decision and, and, Path Factory, uh, we, we did work with an agency with Velocity Partners uh, on the rebrand, and they were brilliant. Our own marketing team was absolutely phenomenal too. But the thing that I love most about the name is that's really what we're doing, right? We're helping buyers on the path to purchase, and hopefully the factory 
speaks to the fact that we can manufacture that at an industrial scale. Um, but it's, work, it's working really well for us. I think it's, uh, it's, it's landed very well with our customers and indeed the market in general. And uh, I think it makes sense to people, which is really kind of all you can hope for, I guess, with a, with a rebrand. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Nice. So you ready? Ready for my yeah. Yeah. pie in the sky? Okay. So B2B marketing, digital marketing itself has evolved, you know, say even over the more so over the last 10 years than it ever has before, right? Yeah. Um, I remember when Samir started, Samir and I started working together in 2008, you know, there was a, all these different focuses. It slowly evolved. I mean, you've seen the the growth of uh, Scott Brinker's Martech stack, right? Starting with 150 companies in 2011 to over 7,000 this past year. And you kind of want to smack your head against the wall and think, where is this evolving to, right? Lately, a lot of, a lot of people have been saying, hey, you know, it's AI is the new thing. Customer service is the new thing. Omni-channel is the new thing. Where do you, where is this going? Because it's going somewhere. Because in my mind, there's a point of diminishing return. There's a plateau. Yeah. Everything builds up to something. It's going to plateau. And all of a sudden, to be blunt, shit's going to hit the fan. And something's all of a sudden, people are going to have this epiphany and say, why the hell have we been doing it this way? <laughs> this is completely wrong. We're going to change and pivot. And this is the new way of doing B2B marketing. What is that really pie in the sky thing that you maybe, maybe have a few cocktails with the the marketing nerdery and think i think it's going this direction what's that thing? Uh, yeah it's a it's a great question it's one that's uh that literally keeps me up at three in the morning that and uh, a five-year-old small boy um <laughs> the, the way that we use it it comes out to what we talked about right at the top right around fire enablement and uh the the, the biggest problem to my mind is is the buyers have changed at a rate that, that we have. And I think when you look at things like sales productivity per head has been flat for the last five years. Forrester reported last year that 1% of B2B leads turn into revenue. Uh, Gartner put out something in October saying 77% of B2B buyers are reporting that the buyer's journey has got more complicated and longer and so harder. Mm-hmm. Good thing, right? Martech is the first generation of Martech, I think, and certainly uh, the kind of map centricity to the to the Martech stack has um, it didn't it didn't work. For us. It worked for marketers, it didn't work for buyers. And yeah. As a result, it's actually therefore failing marketing too. Like you can't you can't bandy around a stat like oh one percent of my leads turn into revenue. That is not a good use of time. That's why I think the rest of the business has their eyes so much focused on marketing. It's like, we're dropping 12% of top line revenue into marketing. You better tell me how you guys are using it, using it properly. So you're saying you're seeing the efficiency on the, on the side of the vendor and the marketer creating more efficient, greater products or allowing them to do greater things. But the lag is really in the customer side that we're really still getting that very low conversion rate. Is that kind of what you're saying? I'm saying that the, 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 the data points are actually, I think, not necessarily related, but I think they're all telling. Right, sales productivity per head, for example. It's like, well, how do we grow that? If sales productivity per head is flat, my only option is to drop more money into marketing, mm-hmm. build my BDR team, recruit more AEs. That's okay. A sustainable growth path. 
but I can't, I don't have an alternative with the Vartex stack as it exists today and with my approach to BD marketing. So the, the thing that, the, the, the big vision piece, the thing that keeps, that I spend a lot of time thinking about is, uh, is how do we create a better value exchange for our audience whenever and where we see them? And I mean, I think you look at kind of the, the, the BDB um, uh, website, and almost how do we stop marketing and start enabling? How do we take mm -hmm. us out of it and put the buyer front and center? And there's been an awful lot of chat about digital transformation and customer centricity. We will not achieve any of that until we embrace that and start saying, what does the buyer need? The buyer's always got jobs to get done, right? In these various phases. How do we accommodate that? So most people's B2B websites, the moment, the B2B website, I'm going to do a very trite, terrible characterization of it, but it's almost like a, just a glorified, sometimes slightly interactive product function, right? Is that really what we want our kind of digital footprint to be? Is just like a, like a, 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 a glorified ad? Or where's the value exchange here? The glorified brochure, yeah. And so how, how, how do we better serve the B2B buyers on their journey? How do we do things like match and supply and demand? I mean, we've been, Netflix has changed my life. It's definitely changed my consumption habits. I grew up in a country where for the vast majority of my childhood, there were only four TV channels. So darn right, you watch uh, Antiques Roadshow at five o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Antique Roadshow. <laughs> I can't hear the music of that without starting to think, oh, I'm getting Sunday Night Blues. Um, yeah. Whereas now I've got all these things. I'm now in charge. I'm now in charge, not the TV company. And B2B marketers, the most challenging thing I think we have to face is how do we release control and just be, how can we enable our buyers so that they can pull them? so much of it has been pushed historically. It's tough. Right? Does that make sense? It does. And it's tough. And I'm yeah, sure I really do feel like that's the, I haven't heard that viewpoint before, but I really do feel like that, that, that is it because yeah, it's. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the points that it's a, it's a bigger concept, right? If you look at it, everything that's happening in the market right now, which more marketing technology is coming in, uh, AI is seeping into almost every other thing that we're doing from a business perspective. Buyers are changing. Uh, the content of production is increasing. Like a lot more people are producing more quantity and quality. Uh, I really think the role that Path Factory plays into all of this, like what I call is like perfect storm of marketing, it, it it paves a way for their customers to forget all this noise that's happening in the market and just focus on the content and how content can amplify and improve the journey of the buyer from end to end. So that's, I, I feel like, you know, uh, it's a great opportunity for people to go and learn from what Pat Factory is doing and experience what they're bringing uh, to the table from a platform perspective, combining all these different nuances together. I don't know what you think, Nick. Does I, that I think, frame it correctly? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the questions that, um, that drives us, uh, certainly from a product roadmap perspective and something that we're talking to our customers about a lot is uh, one of our customers is far right. So how does Bob, if he's my prospect, when and how does Bob see himself in FireEye's marketing? Because if he shows up on FireEye.com, nothing's changed, right? So we actually launched, we announced some uh, new functionality for the guiding concierge and 
uh, as Jeremy and I were talking a bit about before, it's, it's designed to complement Faro's existing investment into SEMS. Or, I can't remember if they use it yet, but AEM and Target, because Target is frequently being used in a macro kind of personalization level, right? Because I'm in telecom, show them this. No, I don't see myself in that, right? So I've got a history. Uh, there are my peers in my account are engaging with stuff that I might not have seen. There's things that we definitely think we should see that our rep service recommends based on your previous topics of interest. And there's things the market wants you to see, right? And so we've been focused on how do we build uh, kind of like uh, content experiences that dynamically generate off those four types of content. So that if I do, if I've engaged with a, a campaign that we sent two days ago, I show it back up on the website to now check out the pricing page. How can I find that content that I'm doing? Because 90% of buyers are looping backgrounds to try and engage with more content. Uh, how do I, how do you help me on my journey? How do you enable me? Because the job of B2B marketing is to help buyers buy. And we might have abstracted that and lost sight of that on occasion. Well, the thing is, is that marketers are spending all this money sitting there and I'll, I'll try to create a visual representation of it. They're trying to grab the two to three people within a company that they're primarily going after and they're pulling them down the path, path factor. They're pulling them down the path of saying, read this, look at this. Okay. Now read this and look at this. Now read this and look at this. And at the end of the day, all you're doing is dragging people along. Yeah, they're, they're forcing them. Yeah. You're forcing it. So this is the perfect point. You're coming back to the idea of saying, we can't do this shit anymore. You know, is there a way that we can somehow enable you to do this yourself? Yeah, I think mm -hmm. I, I sometimes like liken, liken it to it's like over-parenting, right? Over yes, yeah, yeah. It's a fine line. I've got an eleven-year-old daughter now. It's like, oh my god, like she knows herself better than I do now. She's capable of making some decisions, but I still have the tendency to try and over-parent. And as B two B marketers, sometimes we've been guilty of trying to over-parent. It's like, we have grown adults on the other side of this. How do we give them the tools to, to pull on us? How do, how do we help them? They're still going to make the choices mm -hmm. themselves. How do we help them? No, I, I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's like, uh, that, that, that should be the last question for the day because I think people are going to ponder that and sit and just thinking, how am I, if, because what we also want to do is inspire others to be able to create businesses like yours and, and keep on this whole growth of the MarTech stack. You know, in the right direction. <laughs> in the right direction. If right. you're going to come up with this idea, that's necessarily, but the seven thousand of us already. Yeah. About if today, if today, yeah. Nick Ed Edward inspired you to do something, to sit there and think, go and sit and think for two years and come up for the next brilliant idea because we're all waiting to figure out how to do this. Yeah, it's give me a chance. Reach out. I'd love to talk. I mean, it's a is literally the thing that keeps me up at night. It's like, how do we, how do we, how do we do a better job? And I, I, I think the, um, well, there has been an explosion and stuff. I was speaking with someone recently that's a very keen observer of our space. And he was like, we're only still in the bottom, bottom third. Oh my God, I'm going to mess this up. I'm not a baseball fan. Bottom of the third, bottom of the third innings. Is that right? Yeah. Bottom of the third, yeah. Through, through the evolution, I think of B2B marketing. And, and I fully agree with that. There's a lot more still to play out. I agree. Well, very cool. I Great. think this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, we did a little bit of the nitpicky getting in there and then with a little bit of the pie in the sky. It's like a full course meal. So this has been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and as always to our listeners, we love the fact that, um, you know, we were able to find Nick, uh, him and his team reached out to us and said, Hey, we'd love to have the opportunity to come in and speak to you guys and join your podcast. We love that. 
We love that. And so we'll continue to do what we do. Uh, we look forward to anything new. And Nick, if you've got any new epiphanies, anything changes in the industry or whatever, sure. give us a call again and, and we can do a wrap-up follow-up. People like, here's what's new in my life and here's something that's gone crazy and you would never have thought this is what happened. But I, we, we love this stuff. So I'll take you up on that, guys. Thank you very much, Steve. Happy. Absolutely. And uh, Smear, you got anything? Um, and, no, I think, uh, yeah, I think there are lots of, you know, to summarize, as you said, Jeremy and Nick, uh, you as well, like from, from my standpoint, uh, if you look at the MarTech space and the niche that Pat Factory has carved from a content specific, uh, you know, more like a path, defining the path and finding the path for the audience, uh, it's very important for people to pay attention to, you know, you know from like going back to my, uh, good old days of dealing with content and how do we it impacts uh, your SEO, your SEM, or all the different channels, your MQL production. It's crucial that people not only just focus on producing a lot of content, but also try to make sense of what the buyer is really asking for using a tool like Path Factory. Amen. This is very cool. I like it. Um, so let's follow it up. Like I said, you can always find us on analyticsdaypodcast.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us in a lot of different places. All you got to do is look for analytics today. Um, one word. And, uh, we are excited to keep this show going. I think what Samir, we're almost three plus years now. Yeah. Three plus years. And thank you very much for, to our listeners for all their support and, uh, you know, attending the show and listening to the show in different formats. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you, Nick. And, um, this has been fantastic. fantastic. See you. See you.